Hello, you're listening to The Culture Ball, and I'm Susan Gordon. This is the podcast where I nosy into a wood festooned with art and culture. I'm enthusiastic and totally lost until I find my way and I'm delighted by the discoveries on my path. This week's foray begins in a very simple, open spot, a clearing bathed in sunshine. I'm thinking about the sheer availability of the printed image. I think to myself, I can find and view any painting or photograph I want, and with that is confidence, even a slight swagger. If I don't embark on a such, the vaults are well stocked. With almost no effort, I draw on images by Vermeer, Lowry, Rothko, Lucien Freud, Caravaggio, Gainsborough. They occupy an unmovable place in my mind, as sure as the slabs at Stonehenge. The stones say nothing, the paintings always speak. Quite straightforwardly, they tell me about a time and place. When a think tank or NGO measures socioeconomic factors, well-being, progress, they use data. At the OECD, which counts 38 member states, they're using data to measure social mobility and equal opportunity. When we take a measure of these things, we're informed by culture. The Vermeers remind me of a class of servants and domestic workers. A Gainsborough reinforces the legitimacy of land and money. These images have determined, in a very direct and powerful way, my experience of the world. They also spark an emotional response, sensations that may be unknowable elsewhere. If I had never seen those works, I would have a very different consciousness. And so access, the availability of an image, proves to be a linchpin. I don't remember where I first saw the Vermeers or Gainsborough. I do know there was no obstacles in my way. A line of sight was effortless. The most powerful of democratising actors may be the internet. Otherwise, a mature media, libraries and public art galleries made access possible. This freedom, the unrestricted ease I may move with, I attribute to the epoch I live in. I've witnessed the democratisation of the image. It is complete, was completed in a swoop. The exact moment of the swoop? Impossible to point to. To democratize. Oxford languages accord two meanings to the verb. The first, to introduce a democratic system or principles. The second, to make something accessible to everyone. I may browse, stare, or gallop through seemingly unending resources, but like access to a system or site can be limited, access to art can't be thought of in absolute terms. Getting to this point was a staged process. A series of milestones marked the way. The National Gallery, the first government-sponsored art gallery in England, did not open until 1824. The Dulwich Picture Gallery, the first public art gallery in the country, opened in 1811. The Normans were storming our shores seven centuries earlier. In the history of this nation, a national public gallery is recent. As a child, the acronym FYEO made an impression on me. I saw it in one of the puppet-led television series created by Jerry and Silver Anderson. Which I can't say. Captain Scarlet? Stingray? Thunderbirds, maybe? I asked my parents what FYEO stood for, but even after I had its meaning, I knew I did not fully understand it. For your eyes only had a beguiling, enigmatic quality. It connected a world of bureaucracy, typed documents, hierarchy to the intimacy of what only one person was allowed to see. In adulthood, access is the more compelling draw. The opening of the National Gallery, 
which depended on the purchase of not one but two substantial private collections, was the first milestone I saw, probably because it was the nearest. But we can begin more than 60 years before that, in 1760. An organisation we know today as the Royal Society of Arts, or RSA, was only six years old and hosting its first public exhibition. Across two weeks in spring, a thousand people a day streamed into the show, seeing works from 68 artists. Eight years later, the Royal Academy of Arts, England's first training school for artists, was newly established and holding its first annual exhibition. British art was a nascent industry, and with every first was a new experience to navigate. I detect a self-awareness and energy where we have a small group of people who understand that they are pioneers. It's that same energy we have today when thinkers, critics, leaders and writers confront the new. It is often a very public confrontation, conducted in interviews, through non-fiction books, on YouTube channels. In the 1760s, artists were galvanising as a collective and the public a beneficiary, exposed to new work in a new setting. It seems reasonable that in this moment of flux, the artists and their clients would revisit questions like, how do I see? How do I look at these images? And how can I understand them better? There's evidence of this as late as 1788 in a commentary in response to the RA's exhibition at Somerset House. Humphrey Repton, a landscape designer writing anonymously, saw a fit to advise the public on how to judge a picture according to five categories, composition, drawing, colouring, expression and finishing. Our consumption of images has changed again. I think it's time to ask once more, how do I see? How do I look at these images? And how can I understand them better? The Royal Academy's first president was Sir Joshua Reynolds. Edmund Burke was a friend of his. Students of international relations will know Edmund Burke for his work as a prominent figure in the Whig Party. Certainly all contemporary biographies of Burke focus on his political career. But before he was an MP, and before he had any reason to reflect on the French Revolution or taxation in the US, he was an Irishman in London, a writer, and briefly, a journalist. In 1757, a few years before the inaugural exhibitions from the RSA and RA, Burke published, and here I take a deep breath, a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. They liked long titles back then. A philosophical inquiry. For us, an inquiry may be a report. For an 18th century man and for Burke, an inquiry is a book. The sublime and beautiful. For most of us, the sublime is an immaterial throwaway descriptive. A facial is sublime. A thoughtfully decorated and elegant room. Sublime. At most, sublime may be a drive in a finely engineered car. Sublime is high praise, yet somehow vanishing. It's a puff of smoke at chimney height, disappearing almost as soon as it exists. Sublime is gossamer thin, weightless, and this may owe something to the Latin sublimis, which means high. For the artists surrounding Burke, the poets and writers before Burke, and creatives in the centuries that followed, the sublime was a serious subject. The sublime personified ambition, while at the same time there was the acceptance that the sublime may just be impossible, for most. Compare access, the term I use here, to equality of opportunity used by the OECD. What is the opportunity in seeing one sight, one vision, and not another? I may define the opportunity, grasp a dictionary or thesaurus, and try to flesh it out. I cannot measure it. When these writers and artists considered the sublime, 
it's probably the closest we've ever got to not only discerning the opportunity for feeling and thought in a piece of work, but measuring it. The sublime is a measure of scale. The sublime prompts a kind of highly focused awe and astonishment accompanied by the greatest clarity of thinking. Before I say more about the sublime and how it occupied the thoughts of these artists, before I say anything about the beautiful, I'd like to share something Burke begins with. The first and the simplest emotion which we discover in the human mind is curiosity. By curiosity, I mean whatever desire we have for or whatever pleasure we take in, novelty. We see children perpetually running from place to place to hunt out something new they catch with great eagerness and with very little choice at whatever comes before them. Their attention is engaged by everything because everything has, at that stage of life, the charm of novelty to recommend it. But as those things which engage us merely by their novelty cannot attach us for any length of time, curiosity is the most superficial of all the affections. It changes its object perpetually. It has an appetite which is very sharp, but very easily satisfied. And it always has an appearance of giddiness, restlessness and anxiety. I think that will resonate with anyone who in the engagement of technology has felt their own personal shortcomings. We fretted about diminishing attention spans about the time lost on apps and websites, the exhaustion of a fruitless pursuit online led by hyperlinks and not common sense. This accompanied a sudden uplift in access to information. I've hinted at the glorious possibilities of access, the potential for a growing consciousness. Here is the downside. Did Burke and his peers contend with a similar personal conflict? Were their circumstances somehow like our own? We're here, Edmund Burke is here, for the sublime. Artists including Sir Reynolds were interested in how to bring the sublime to their work, but their writing makes it clear that the quality itself is most readily found in nature. Indeed, Burke does not really consider the visual arts in his analysis. When Reynolds names the sublime in his work, the discourses, he shows a reluctance to attribute it to any work or artist, naming only Michelangelo and Homer. What is the effect, the power of the sublime? Burke again. The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature when those causes operate most powerfully is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its emotions are suspended with some degree of horror. In this case, the mind is so entirely filled with this object that it cannot entertain any other, nor by a consequence, reason on it. When he aligns terror to the sublime, he asserts that different languages use the same word to denote admiration and terror. I most readily think of mountains or a roaring sea. For Burke, a serpent may be sublime, a spider merely odious. But nature possesses many of the attributes of the sublime, which he goes on to name. These are power, infinity, succession and uniformity, magnitude, magnificence, light, colour, sound, suddenness. There's even smell and taste. He also names privation, by which he means vacuity, darkness, solitude and silence. Beautiful is the alternative. Beautiful things invite love, which he describes as satisfaction which arises to the mind, and is careful to distinguish love from desire. Beautiful is not, he's quite sure, about proportions, Beautiful things are or have the qualities of small, smoothness, gradual variation, 
delicacy, and beauty in colour. Colours should be clear and bright, but not very strong and glaring. I immediately think of the most desirable consumer products. I think of Apple, but also Acer, Mattel, Peugeot, even Ikea. I think of the things I've bought on Etsy. Product is beautiful. Edmund Burke did not invent or conceptualise the sublime. The credit for that belongs to a Greek writing in the first century. His name was Longinus, and his treatise on the sublime addressed to a Roman public figure, and let's see if I can get this right, Posthumius Terentianus. We don't know much about either of these men. As I am addressing a person so accomplished in literature, he begins. On the sublime analyses different literary works addressing them against the benchmark of the sublime. An 1890 translation effectively relays what this mystery, the sublime, is all about. It tells us how it feels. It's natural in us to feel our souls lifted up by the true sublime and conceiving a sort of generous exaltation to be filled with joy and pride as though we had ourselves originated the ideas which we read. It also tells us what the sublime does. A lofty passage does not convince the reason of the reader, but takes him out of himself. The sublime, acting with an imperious and irresistible force, sways every reader. A sublime thought, if happily timed, illumines an entire subject with the vividness of a lightning flash and exhibits the whole power of the orator in a moment of time. The sublime, then, is persuasive. My questions were, how do I see... How do I look at images, and how can I understand them better? The sublime and the beautiful provides a framework. It's easy to see how a video game with sudden sounds and a degree of repetition shares in the sublime. Or the stars in the sky, a display of infinity and magnitude. I also think of horror movies, thrillers, even daredevil adventures. The sublime is always within reach, a possibility. If painters aim for the sublime in their work, it would explain why the canvases are often so big and full of drama, and why they depict scenes of horror so often. For 18th century artists working on commissions, however, the sublime was not always realistic. Aristocrats wanted views, depictions of landscapes and buildings, and topographical painting was very popular. In 1768, William Gilpin's Essay on Prints offered a third way, the picturesque. In 1789, the Royal Academy's intake of students included a 14-year-old J.N.W. Turner. As a working artist six years later, an early commission for Turner was painting Hampton Court, an estate in Hertfordshire belonging to Viscount Malden. I must admit that before studying his career, my image of J.M.W. Turner owed rather too much to Michael Lee's 2014 film, Mr. Turner. It's true that in his final years, which Lee portrays, Turner was more likely to do work on spec, but for most of his career, he worked prodigiously on commission. By 21, he earned a healthy living. Later on, he travelled extensively across Europe. By the end of his life, he kept two houses in central London. He did not limit his work to oils and watercolours. In 1830, a poet, Samuel Rogers, commissioned Turner and two other artists to illustrate a book called, quite simply, Italy. It was actually Rogers' third attempt at making Italy a success. Originally a poem based on his travels in 1814, he published it anonymously in 1822, 
or with his name attached in 1828. The manuscript was extended, the edition filled with drawings, and by 1832, it sold 68,000 copies. This project alone made Turner a household name. For Turner and his peers to see new work, they could not depend on publishers, who regularly went out of business, weighed down by lengthy projects. Access depended, in part, on good fortune. It was fortuitous for Turner to grow up in Covent Garden, where he saw prints and shop windows. For the public, it was fortuitous that wealthy collectors threw open the doors of their homes and private galleries, as Sir John Lester did in 1818, and again the following year. It is said that much later in his life, Turner looked at a sea painting by Van der Velde and said, This made me a painter. Fortuitous, then, that collectors admired Van der Velde, almost guaranteeing that Turner would encounter him. But it was grit that took Turner and another artist out on a boat at night, floating on the Thames, sketching as the Houses of Parliament burned down. It was will that powered the planning of long field trips and thousands of preparatory drawings. There are many ways to see. In Laura Cummings' A Face to the World, the art critic remembers being given a batch of postcards in a shoebox as a child. They portrayed the old masters. Ill in bed, she writes, I was given what its owner called a portable museum. I think I would like a portable museum of my own. More recently, social media channels dedicated to colour theory, fashion, architecture and design are hugely popular. They may have a few thousand subscribers. They may have half a million. Without expressly saying so, these channels guide us on how to see. The language has changed. To call a visual work picturesque is damning it with faint praise. To call it sublime merely an expression of delight. But the desire to engage with images is as strong as it ever was. I began by positing that the democratisation of the image was complete, at least for an urbanite in the Western world. But there was something disingenuous in my assertion. It equates the two-dimensional compression to the three-dimensional original. It equates paper or pixels to steel or acrylic. It equates a remote confrontation to being in person. It treats access and enjoyment as equivalent. A truly democratized image is overexposed, compromised. It's the Mona Lisa. This image democracy, if it truly exists, is built on a series of compromises, trade-offs. We need to know what those compromises are and when we make them. Access to the arts and literature is easily a battleground. Access pulses to the beat of no or not you. Even theories and frameworks can be weaponized. In the artist Barnett Newman's 1948 essay, the sublime is now, he writes, the European artist has been continually involved in the moral struggle between notions of beauty and the desire for sublimity. He saw those ideas as straitjackets. I believe that here in America, some of us, free from the weight of European culture, are finding the answer by completely denying that art has any concern with the problem of beauty and where to find it. By rejecting some ideas, the artist Newman could forge access to others. Access extends to the interior self, our thoughts and hopes. It may lead to a nauseating locked room, or promise a life fully lived. Thank you for listening, and please do join me next time as we go into the woods 
with the culture ball.